Joseph has been put in an Egyptian prison on a trumped-up rape charge. Yet God was still with him and enabled him to interpret the dreams of two of Pharaoh's officials who were also in prison. One of the prisoners, the chief cupbearer, was restored to his position just as Joseph had prophesied, but the official forgot to mention him to Pharaoh. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. At that point the chief cupbearer remembered Joseph, and told Pharaoh how Joseph had accurately interpreted his dreams, and that of the other official. So Pharaoh brought Joseph from the dungeon and said, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Pharaoh then told Joseph his two dreams, and God enabled Joseph to interpret them for him. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. Joseph, inspired by God, came up with a plan of action and shared this plan with Pharaoh. They should store up enough grain in the good years so that there would be enough food for all Egypt when the famine came. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Hey, hey. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Really good to see you this weekend and to be continuing uh, this great series around the life of Joseph living the dream. You know, there are some very special days that stand out, aren't there? They're red letter uh, days that we remember for the rest uh, of our lives. I uh, was calculating earlier today that I have been on this planet for 61 years. Uh, thank you. Uh, three months. Uh, 10 days and about uh, 12 hours. I calculated that is 536,804 hours. Some of you are looking at me right now thinking, you need to get out more, pal. That is really, really sad. But I have been able to narrow down one 15-minute segment of my life out of all of those hours where everything totally 
changed for me. It was the day, maybe you'd expect this, it was the day that I became a Christian at the age of 17 back in 1837. Uh, Queen Victoria was a girl and I um, um, was a lad and became a Christian. But not only did I decide to follow Jesus that day, but within five minutes of making that decision, I met Kay, who will have been my wife now next year for 40 years. I met her um, that very same five minutes. Thank you for that round of applause for Kay for bearing up for these 40 years in the wilderness. 40, it's a biblical number. It's been great uh, to know uh, that in that day, looking back, everything changed. It was a bit awkward at the start because, um, as I've shared here before, uh, I went along to church that night with a really good-looking friend, a guy that was a friend of mine, and uh, Kay noticed him and frankly fancied him ahead of me. I sense a wave of authentic compassion. (laughs) I'm over it now, I'm over it. She eventually saw the light, but it didn't begin so well. In one day, in one day, everything changed. When we look closely at the life of Joseph, we see that in one day, everything changed. 13 years, imagine it, 13 years of slavery and then imprisonment are brought to an end. Not only that, but those years, as we're going to see, are used as a prelude and indeed preparation for all that is going to become. And in one day, he goes from prisoner in a pit, most likely, to prime minister in the greatest power in that ancient world. It was on February the 11th, 1990, that after many years of incarceration, Nelson Mandela was released. It was four years after that release that prisoner Mandela became President Mandela. Four years. And that was a meteoric escalation and rise. Imagine this. One day, you're in the Prime Minister's office, as it were. Now, Before we really dive into this story, what I want us to do, if you will, is pan the camera back and just take a broad look at what is going on. And this story actually has many lessons that it can teach us. First of all, and this really cheers me up no end, I hope it helps you too, let's affirm this truth today. Come with me if you will. God is ultimately in charge. Do we believe that today? God is ultimately in charge, and the despots of our world can shake their fists and trade their junior high school insults with each other. But the reality that we celebrate today, that while not everything that happens is God's will, because we don't live in a puppet theater where God pulls the strings of every detail, God doesn't always get his way, which is why we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done, because we want to see the will of God in this city, in this locality, in this nation. We pray, and that's why, you know, every time I come to Kingsgate, you're praying and fasting again. What is it with you people? You're going to waste away, I'm concerned. Why do we do that? More seriously, it's a wonderful thing to do. We've just had a 24-hour prayer meeting in our church in Timberline back in Colorado. And I want to tell you something. That prayer meeting was sparked by you. And that is not rhetoric. It's not a, a statement of flattery. Every time I come here, you people are praying. 
And I make a, a, a joke out of it and have some fun with it, but I've been impacted by Kingsgate over the last two decades I've been showing up here, being a people of prayer. And I've gone back to Colorado and I've said, look, we've got to do this. And so just last weekend, we had 24 hours of continuous prayer and it was amazing. Thank you, Kingsgate, for igniting that story in us. So this is a... This is an account of the truth that God is ultimately in charge. Secondly, this story shows us we don't need to be afraid, however big Pharaoh might be. We don't need to be afraid. And that's good news because fear is the new epidemic. Just a couple of weeks ago, I got onto a news internet website. I won't name the website. That would be inappropriate and somewhat rude to MSN. But I got on this news website. And I learned, ladies and gentlemen, have you heard about this? A death star is coming towards the earth. And it's going to unleash a a series of comets that they think will probably devastate the earth. And I looked at this story and I thought, what? I mean, how come no one mentioned it? We should have, they should have told us. And so I clicked on the bit where you click because that's what they want me to do, to click on the bit where you click because then I'm going to have to look at that ad for that washing machine or that wig or whatever. And I realized then that it's absolutely true. You heard it first here. This weekend in Kingsgate, a Death Star is heading towards the earth. It's true. It's expected to arrive here in 1.3 million years. So it's all right. You can relax. But you see, the reason for the, for the story was that fear makes me click. We do not have to be afraid. Thirdly, thirdly, this story tells us that we are people of the truth. Even when the truth is hard and tough to take. We're going to see that Joseph stood before Pharaoh, a man reputed to be a god, but he couldn't interpret his own dreams, so he was a bit of a limited godette. Joseph stands before this man, and he declares that a famine is coming, knowing that that could not go down well, necessarily. There might be some challenging news. But listen, we're called to tell the truth, even if the truth isn't popular. There are going to be times when people stand behind this and they preach and teach faithfully and they say what you don't want to hear. Last weekend, I was preaching at Timberline Church in Colorado, my home church, and a gentleman came along. He'd been a Christian, I think, for quite a while, not from our church. He came visiting from another church and I said something that offended him. Can you believe that that could possibly happen? He completely misunderstood what I'd said. So on Monday, um, my admin assistant called me and she said, I've had a very irate couple of phone calls from a lady who's very offended at what you said at the weekend. So I said, really? I said, well, let me help out. I'll call her. So give me her name and number. So I phoned her and she went, yes. I said, Pastor Jeff here from Timberline. Oh, yes. I knew it wasn't going to go well. I said, you were in church this weekend? She said, yes. I said, you, you were, she said, actually, my husband was. I wasn't. And she said, uh, I said, um, I understand he was offended by something I said. She said, yes, he really was. I said, may I explain it? She said, yes, but don't think I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> I said, that's interesting, because I, mean, I haven't even said anything yet, but you're prophetically offended. That really, 
that really is quite something. So I explained it. I said, does that explain for you what it was that I said? She said, yes, it does, but we're going to look for another church. So I said, hold on a minute. I've just explained it, have I not? And you already go to another church. I know that. Do you know what she did? She slammed the phone down on me. Bam. Why did she do that? The other interesting thing is she wasn't even in the service and she got offended. That's a gift. (laughs) There are going to be times when people stand up here and because they are called by God to bring the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you're going to sit there and go, oh, I don't like that. Get over it. Because we are people. Can, can, can I go there again? Can I, can I give you another illustration? Can I risk offending you? Everyone say yes. You don't want me to. I can see that. You're lying, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'll give you an example. Here's another example, okay? If you're a regular around here at Kingsgate, show up on time. <laughs> I can see some people out there going... You're making horsey noises. But you see, our task, and I just use it as a simple, trivial illustration, although it is really rather important, is not to say what you like, but it is to say what is true. And so here it is. Here is Joseph, and he's standing before Pharaoh, and as a result of that conversation, he's promoted. Very quickly, promotion is not always a good thing for some people. Did you know that I believe God cannot always trust everyone with promotion and success because it can ruin them? Not only that, but back in the 60s, a book was written called The Peter Principle, and the book illustrates the truth that in many organizations, most people are promoted to the level of their incompetency. <laughs> they're really good at this job and the next job that they get is not more difficult it's just different they don't have the skill set for it and so they're promoted to a level of incompetency and then the second principle in the Peter principle is that those who work for them tend to compensate for them rather than their superiors if I might put it that way actually bringing repair to the situation not every promotion is good In literature, Macbeth was a successful military commander, incompetent king. Socrates was an amazing teacher but became a defense attorney and it turned out disastrously. But here is Joseph. And as we're going to see in detail in a moment, he's been shaped for this promotion. And then, I love this, the suddenly of God comes The breakthrough is there. It's not just about waiting. Suddenly, I don't know whether it was a rope lowered into the pit or a key turned in a dungeon door lock, but suddenly, there's breakthrough. I want to tell you something before I move on. This is not in my notes. I'm winging it, but let's just go there. Over the course of this last two hours, here in Kingsgate, just wandering around. I have been treated to a number of breakthrough stories which are just staggering. I have met people in the last hour who told me that through the ministry of this church, Jesus has rescued them from the most horrifying background. 
I've had the conversation. I bumped into someone after another service, and they, the earlier service here, and they just started to tell me of what God had supernaturally done. I want to say this to you, Kingsgate. You don't get all the stories, and you can't because of things like confidentiality. But I want to stand here today and tell you that there are stories of breakthrough and revelation happening all around you where people's lives are being changed. Know it, expect it, believe for it, and push on for the fullness of all that God has got in the future. Thank God for what he is doing. So now let's come back to the promotion of Joseph. What can we learn specifically from that? If you're following with me on that outline, follow along. Number one, number one, be a lifelong student in Redemption Academy. Be a lifelong student in Redemption Academy. I alluded to it earlier, but over the process, the process of this lengthy incarceration and time in slavery... The young man has changed. The brash, you might say insensitive way that he handled his brothers who hated him because he was dad's favorite and now Joseph just shares a dream about them all bowing down before him which didn't do anything to win their affection. They hated him all the more, says Genesis 37. He's navigated away from that place. He has become more sensitive more determined to give glory to God rather than just be the man of self-confidence. When he deals with the cupbearer and the baker two years before this episode, he's really quick to say, do not interpretations belong to God? Then he says, tell me your dreams. But even, even just two years later, he's moved further from that. So when he stands before Pharaoh, if you read the narrative carefully, he just keeps on going on about God. It's God who gives the interpretation. It's God who will bring this to pass. Almost to the point of redundancy, uh, Joseph is saying, it's God, it's God, it's God. He has learned from his journey. The veil of tears has has turned out to be the valley of soul-making. Are we living in what we've learned? It's called wisdom. Are we going around in circles, making the same old mistakes, the same old tripwires, the same old temptations, the same old, the same old sins over and over? Are we learning? I, I had a breakthrough yesterday. Um, yesterday, our son, Ale- our son, our grandson, Alex, he was six. He had a sixth birthday party and Kay and I were in attendance as helpers and chili distributors and uh, there were 16 six-year-olds I decided yesterday that God has not called me to be a teacher (laughs) bless their little hearts and it was really great to be at the party but before the party Alex said to me granddad um, why don't you come and play with me we're going to do some Lego so I said that would be awesome um, now, does anyone remember Lego? Anyone remember Lego? Now, look, when I was growing up, Lego was simple. You built a house. The end. If you were really sophisticated, the house had windows. That was it. There was that grey slab that you stuck bricks on, then you put the, the bricks on, and then you added the windows, and the end. No longer. 
Now you can build a 7,327 part Tyrannosaurus Rex. It will take you four weeks. So you see, I've never been good at following instructions. I inherited that genetically from my mother. She never followed instructions. She never followed recipes. She'd start with a recipe and then give up, which meant that some of our mealtimes were monstrosities. And she never read the instructions on packets so that when concentrated washing powder came out, she didn't adjust the dose that she put in the washing machine, which meant that our entire family were up to our armpits in suds. So genetically, it's really not my fault, I blame her, I inherited this lack of liking instructions. And so yesterday, when Alex poured out this huge, intimidating pile of Lego, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to say, don't worry about that 37-page instruction book. We don't need that. Intuitively, I believe we can put this together. But no, I have learned from my folly. And so instead of doing that, I followed the book. And a T-Rex worthy of roaring now exists. I have learned my lesson. Are we learning and applying our lessons? And not only that, are we allowing God to redeem even the bad bits in our lives? You see, God didn't set it up that Joseph's brothers would betray him, but that betrayal led to him being sold into slavery. If he hadn't been sold into slavery, he would never ended up in Potiphar's house. If he hadn't ended up in Potiphar's house, there wouldn't have been the temptation to adultery. He said no to the adultery. God did not set up that temptation, but because he said no, he ends up in prison. And because he's in prison, he's available to the Pharaoh. Did God book appointments with all of those episodes? No, but God redeems things, you see. He turns things around that he is not the architect of. Here's the question. Are we learning and applying our learning? Or do we just keep bumping up? What is it the Bible talks about? The sin that does so easily entangle. Familiar territory. But we are never quite getting around to learning. The second thing we learn here is that we are called to walk in the power of disillusionment. We're called to walk in the power of disillusionment. That sounds like a crazy statement. Two long years earlier, Joseph had interpreted the dreams of a baker and a cupbearer. But get this, he's still in jail. If Joseph had any thought that just because he was obedient to God, that two plus two would equal four, that the fulfillment of the prophetic and the interpretation of the dream would automatically mean release, he had to lose that illusion. I was going to say pretty quickly, if he had it, he lost it over two years. A mechanistic, unrealistic approach to life and faith is really unhelpful. And I've spent most of my life trying to not be disillusioned because disillusioned people can allow that to distill into cynicism. Just recently, I've embraced it as a gift. 
I'll tell you why. When we're disillusioned, we are divested of an illusion, and illusions are not good. When we're disillusioned, we face the reality, and then we decide to be faithful in it. You see, we're all born into an illusion if we're born into a healthy family. Uh, When you were a month old, if you wanted food, here's what you did. You just screamed. And you were the center of the universe, weren't you? And that's what life was like. You hungry, you scream. Forgive me for being so blunt, but when you were a month old, if you needed a poo, you poo. Some of you are looking at me with that horsey look again. He just, he just said poo. This comes from the Greek word, poo-sin. Some of you are writing that down. I made that up, people. I'm messing with you. When you're a month old, you want to eat? Ah! You want to poo? I'm not going to try and demonstrate that. You try that when you're 21. You see, gradually you were divested of an illusion that the world centers around you. It's part of growing up. I suggest to you that Jesus spent three years disillusioning his disciples. Say, what? They had a Jewish messianic expectation of a Messiah figure who would go to Jerusalem, kick out the nasty Romans, and establish thrones there. They kept coming back to that apocalyptic illusion. And he had to say, no, 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 no. It's cross, and it's resurrection but they had to be disillusioned before they could capture the vision they had to be disillusioned about themselves Peter says I'll never deny you Jesus says there's going to be a rooster crowing three times (laughs) I think we need to be disillusioned with church it's a great church it's a great church this one of my favorite churches in the world wonderful It's, it's full of imperfect people I mean look around Look who you're sitting next to. Look who they allow to come here. This is imperfect. And it's not going to be exactly to your liking. You need to be disillusioned and face the reality of the humanness that is still in the place and commit to that. We need to be disillusioned, those of us who are married. We need to be disillusioned with marriage. Get real about it. Why is it that Hollywood produces romantic comedies where no one ever drools on the pillow. Why is that? I'm going to write to someone about that. And how is it, forgive me, but how is it that these, these newlyweds in the, in the romantic comedy, they wake up in the morning and they kiss? Yuck! Because I tell you what... That morning breath that can knock you off your feet at 50 yards, that doesn't exist in Hollywood, baby. Oh, no. Come on. Smoochy, smoochy. And then you wake up with the snoring, drooling, breath of death reality. And you know what you do? You commit to what is rather than the illusion. Thirdly, thirdly, don't make waves, but surf the waves that God makes. Don't make waves, but surf the waves that God 
makes. This is all about God at work. It's all about God doing something so that even the idol-worshipping Pharaoh figures out that there's this anointing upon Joseph, one that he probably didn't, that Pharaoh didn't understand, but he sees it. Surf God's waves. Over the years, I have not given that many prophecies. You know when someone has a word from the Lord and they, how many know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know. And if if you don't, um, a prophecy is when someone senses that God has said something and shares that with an individual or with a group. And I've not done that much. I believe in prophecy. My ministry has been shaped by prophecy. I'm standing on this platform because of, of a prophetic word in my life when I was 17. Totally believe. But I haven't, I haven't prophesied that much. One, because I don't want to get it wrong and mess people's lives up. And, and secondly, because I've seen some of the silly stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Where someone who looks very strange with that sort of furrowed browed intensity comes up to you and they say, um, I've got a picture of a yellow jellyfish who is tap dancing on a tin of ambrosia creamed rice while whistling, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> and, they, and, and you're desperately trying to kind of look like, awesome. And they look you deep in the eye and they go, does that mean anything to you? And you go, you, you, you think, yeah, call the NHS helpline, <laughs> quick, quick, whatever you do. So I haven't prophesied that much, but here's what happened. It's about maybe a year, maybe a couple of years ago, can I watch this movie? And we enjoyed this film. It was an internationally famous actor. If I mentioned his name, and I never will, in sharing this story, Two reasons, pastoral, it's confidential, and secondly, I can't stand preachers who drop names of famous people, so I'm not going to do that. But I, um, I, had, I watched this film, and in the film was this actor, and there was an, another uh, older lady who played a supportive role in the movie. Okay, watch the movie, nice. About three weeks later... I'm, a, I'm in bed asleep one night, and I have a dream about that actor. And in my dream, which is really vivid, the older lady in the cast, she has just died. And he is giving a press release and announcing his sadness at her death. So I dreamed the dream. I wake up. I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. Went back to sleep. Dreamed the same dream again. Wake up again. Thought, oh, that's a bit weird. Went back to sleep. Dream the dream again, wake up, and I thought, well, that's a bit weird, a bit slow. So it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, 9 or 10 o'clock British time. So I got up and went into my office, and I'm thinking, what's this, what's this dream about this bloke and that lady? So if in doubt, ask Google. So I put, punched the actor's name into Google, and, and poof, this news item, which had just been posted came up. Get this. While I was dreaming about that lady dying, she died. She'd just passed away. And it was 30 minutes, 45 minutes later, and he was just issuing a press release. 
to express his sadness at the loss. I'm sitting there going, what? So I prayed. And I said, Lord, what are you doing? Because this is too much to be a coincidence. Is there something do you want me to do with this? And I felt like God said to me, make contact with him and tell him that I love the people that he loves. Now that freaked me out. I thought, what a strange thing to say. Surely I'm supposed to say, hello, repent and be born again. Not God loves the people you love. That's obscure. But sometimes you just got to obey and do what God says. So I thought I'd better make contact with him. So I got on his Facebook page. There's only about five or maybe ten million people on his Facebook page. So I got on his Twitter thing, and there's lots of tweeting Twitters and millions of people. And I thought, how am I going to get this message to him? Then I remembered that a friend of mine used to know this guy before he got famous. So I dug out my friend's email. Hello, I've had this dream. Do you still have contact with that chap? He came right back. He said, not only do I still have contact, I'm seeing him next week for lunch. I said, here's the dream. Pass it on. A week later, my friend came back. He said, I told him I shared the dream. He said, he w- he said thank you very much. And then he said he was speechless. He was speechless. Do I know the end of the story? No, but I do know this. God has planted a seed that I don't even fully understand. I tell you this as well. Those of you that break your hearts for prodigals who are out there, God is out there as well. He is the hound of heaven, and he is able to get their attention in ways that we could never even begin to imagine. But my point is this. It was a wave that I was called to ride. Here's a postscript before I move on to my last couple of things I want to say. Earlier today, when I was praying about this and praying about you, I felt like God said to me, what about now though? Like, are you going to just dine out on that story? Can I do something fresh and new in you, Jeff? Is there another adventure 40 years after becoming a Christian? Is there a new dimension? Is there a wide screen? You know when you go to the pictures and you're sitting there watching the commercials for the deodorant and then suddenly the movie comes on and the screen goes and it widens. Does God want to take us into a wider screen place? Bless God for the opportunity to go to the city this Christmas and invite the city here. But God doesn't just want to do that in the city and in the corporate. He wants to do that with some of us who've been around for so many years and we've become so familiar and we've got our stories and God is saying, don't just live as people who celebrate a history, but go forward as people who embrace a destiny. Are we up for it? Are we up for it? Number four, very quickly. Number four, embrace the blessing of limits. Embrace the blessing of limits. I love the fact that Joseph insists 
that his source is God. That he's not the source of all this. And he must have been tempted to play himself into center position. Why? Because he could do with a get out of jail free card. But he doesn't. He recognizes the limitations of his humanity and keeps pointing back to God. Let's remember when we exercise any kind of gift or talent that number one, it belongs to God. It's not ours. Don't get territorial about it. And secondly, don't only know what you can do, but know what you can't do. Because churches have been wrecked by people who think they've got a gift, but they haven't got a gift. But everyone's too scared to tell them. Like Florence Foster Jenkins, who filled Carnegie Hall, packed the place. She, she's described as the worst opera singer in history. A movie was made about it. Hugh Grant, others starring in the movie. One writer said of her, no one before or since has succeeded in liberating themselves quite so completely from the shackles of musical notation. Know what you can do, no one told her. And then the day came when she read the review in the New York Star and she died heartbroken a month later. I think she'd have lived longer and happier if someone had just said, Florence, you can't sing. You've perhaps heard that when someone stands and says, the Lord has given me a song. And you hear it, all 47 verses, with much high-pitched shrieking. And you think, if he gave you that song, he surely didn't want it. <laughs> I can hear someone saying, no, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, you can't. You say, what? That doesn't mean you can do anything. You can do anything... That Christ strengthens you for. You can't do anything. If you're a chap, you, can't, you, you probably can't play the bassoon, speak Cantonese, and you certainly can't give birth to twins. It's no good saying I can do anything. That's not what the Bible says. And by the way, when Paul wrote those words, he was under house arrest. So he couldn't even go to Starbucks. It's not about aspiration. It's about contentment, that verse. Know your limits. I used to lead worship. did. Thanks for your wave of confidence there. I led worship for conferences with thousands of people, with me and a guitar. And one day a friend, thank God for that friend, came to me and said, Jeff, the body of Christ would sigh a collective sigh of relief if you just shut up and put that guitar down. <laughs> know what you can do, what you can't do. Last thing is this. Let's celebrate church as our catalyst and the world as our context. Church is our catalyst. The world is our context. What does that mean? This means that we're called to be world changers together. This week I, wrote the, I read these excellent words by a commentator that you might know. His name is David Smith. Pastor Dave's words, I don't want to reinterpret them because they sum it up. Dave said this, God doesn't want to just raise you up as an individual Joseph, but rather place you in connection with a Joseph company, a group of differently gifted but wonderfully united men and women in a local church who together can make a harmonious sound that will cause the world to stop and wonder. Now notice something. Joseph prophesies, we get excited about that, the prophecy opened the door, but it was his strategic planning gift 
that kept the door open. Here is a dilemma that I've seen over the years. There are some people who, who, who just think that God only works within the context of the church at the weekends or in small groups. That that's where God operates. And there's almost a disconnection between their Sunday and their Monday. They live in different worlds. And then there are other people who've done a, a reaction to the other extreme. And they're interested in, in just being kingdom people in the workplace. And they're almost dismissive of church. Yeah, we don't need to, you don't need to go along and sing all those songs and listen. Don't forget all of that. Let's just get on with being salt and light in the community. And we swing from one to the other. I want to make this statement. I believe it's part of the reason that God has blessed Kingsgate. We need both. We need to have a theology of church where we understand that because life often renders us speechless, that we need to gather together to be catalyzed and energized and taught and inspired so that we can be sought and light in the world and we need to take that anointing into the workplace and live this Christian life out but it's not either or it's both and church as catalyst world as our context Abraham persistently interceded on behalf of Sodom why? because the people of God were called to be priests to the world and not just to their own people. There's Jeremiah calling upon the exiles in Babylon to pray and Daniel ministering in Babylon and Jonah to uh, Nineveh, the Assyrians. Prophetic politicians released into the world, catalyzed in God's community. So as uh, I conclude this, We see Joseph, and we see the suddenly God. Today, what I want us to do, before we sing a song that speaks about expectation and anticipation, perhaps, in this venue, today, let's ask for that anointing. And for those of us who've been around a while and the vocabulary is familiar, perhaps it's time to dig a new well and ask for the river of God to flow afresh. Stir us up, break us out, and take us places that we haven't been to yet.